how difficult it is in some places to get people to talk to one another in church. Whereas the problem we seem to have is getting to stop talking to one another. What a good problem to have. Anyone else get an iPhone like me? I didn't ask for it, but yeah. <laughs> Thank you for confessing there. I appreciate that. This is great. It does all sorts of things. It takes, takes pictures. It, it, it tells jokes. It can even use it as a phone. Um, I particularly like the picture-taking thing because I found a thing called an app. Now, most people here are young enough that, that you know what an app is. It's a tiny little thing which allows you to do something meaningless. This one doesn't. This app, if I take a picture... Okay, that's quite good. You don't look that good, though. I mean, some of you are not smiling. This app, I can go in and I can delete your face. That's not bad. In fact, there's some people here that I'm not sure I quite like being here. I wonder if I can delete them as well. <laughs> hey, it works. It's great. We, 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 live in a, we live in a world where we like to airbrush stuff, don't we? I mean, all the magazines you see, and it doesn't have to just be with models in the front, but most magazines, someone has got to Photoshop and done something with it. Now, if you don't know what Photoshop is, Ricky, who plays keyboard, will tell you everything you want to know about Photoshop. It's a way of going in and improving real life in a picture. I've got an app which does that as well. It's quite good if, if what you see doesn't match up to what you would like. You can Photoshop it, make it a bit better. The passage that we've got today is a non-Photoshopped approach to life. It follows directly on from um, what Andy um, and Sarah preached on and that was quite a dreadful incident where Jacob, remember, Jacob, whose grandfather is Abraham, whose father is Isaac, and this is a man who God has made a promise to the family that they will be a great nation and they will bless all the peoples of the earth. And that promise is going all the way through this, this story. And we come to Jacob, and here he's married two women. He's married two sisters, something which will be expressly forbidden later on in God's law, Leah and Rachel. Leah's not so nice looking as Rachel, and he loves Rachel more than Leah. And that's where we're at just now. So we're coming in the midst of a a not terribly nice story. What we look at here is something which is fairly critical, and it is the origin of the children of Israel, the origin of the children of Jacob, and it's the story of their birth. This is God's word, and he's written, written this down for us, for our instruction. If, you, if you've got a Bible, I mean, feel free to follow it on the screen, but if you've got a Bible, it's probably quite good, good if you can follow me in that as well. Um, starting chapter 29, verse 31, and we'll read all the way through to chapter 30, verse 24. Okay, so 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. 
So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. So Leah, the first person that Jacob married, has had four children. The one that he's shown favoritism to, Rachel, has not had any children. Verse 1, chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhah, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and that through her, I too can build a family. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her maidservant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The woman will call me happy. So she named him Asher. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my maidservant to my husband. So she named him Isaacar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I've borne them six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you.
that you talk to men and women like us. That by the spirit of Jesus, you tell us what's true about ourselves. You tell us what's true about the world. And you tell us what's true about God. And so we ask now, Spirit of Jesus, that you come and enable us to hear what you want us to hear from this story, from your word. And enable us to respond to you, the only living God. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Difficult story. I think that's fair to say. Why did the writer of Genesis put this in? Why did the person that wrote the book of Genesis go to such lengths to tell such a a dreadful story in some ways? A promise was made to Abraham, you will have lots of descendants and the world will be blessed through you. And in chapter 28 of Genesis, that same promise is made to Jacob. I will be with you, I'm your God, you'll be a great nation and the peoples of the world will be blessed through you. And so here we have A historical account of the origin of the nation of Israel, really. The children of Israel. They're there because this is fulfilling part of God's promise. God had promised that it would be a great nation, and this is part of it. But there's no way of brushing here, is there? I mean, if I said to you, let's write down your family history, and there was some really nasty stuff in it, you wouldn't want it. You certainly wouldn't want it in a book that's been read out in front of hundreds of people. And yet here we have an account, warts and all, of what happened. God's purpose and bringing about the fulfillment of his promise. But you read what it looks like on the ground, it's a bit of a mess. From Leah came Judah. Judah was in the direct line of King David, who was really special in the light of the Jews. And so the book of Genesis shows the beginning of that kingly race of David. For Christians, King David was in the direct line of Jesus. And so here we see in this part of Genesis, part of the fulfillment of God's promise that all the peoples of the world will be blessed because through Judah, son of Leah, Jesus will come. So that's why it's there. But it's warts and all. Warts and all. It's interesting, isn't it? Lots of people say, well, you, know, you can't trust the Old or New Testament because the people have gone back and they've rewritten it according to the way they wanted things to happen. Is that the way you would rewrite it? <laughs> if that was your family history and you had a chance of rewriting it, no one would know if you were airbrushing bits out. Would you want that all to be known? The person that wrote Genesis is a great writer, just as great as Steinbeck or or, or any of these other great writers of the 20th and 21st century. Fantastic writer. And when we read this passage, we can see there are various themes that come through. Actually, the themes that come through all of Genesis, but here they come really sharply into focus. And what I want to do is just briefly look at those themes because the person that wrote this under God's inspiration has gone to a lot of trouble to weave these themes in. It's a master craftsman. So it behoves us to look at some of the things that have been woven in. Master craftsman under the guidance of the Holy Spirit here for us. The first theme that comes through, yes, this is about the fulfillment of God's promise. 
But as you read through it, surely you must pick up, as I did, just human frailty. All the way through how frail human beings are. There's two things in particular in this, in this passage. The first one is what happens when someone created by God, made to be loved, made for affection, made to be affirmed, the way God made us, doesn't get those things. What happens when someone who should be loved is not loved? And you can see that that thought permeates the whole passage. Leah. Have a look. Grab your Bible. Verse, uh, chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. So that's, that's God's commentary on it. He looked down. He's able to see everything. And he knows that she wasn't loved. She knows it too. Go on to the, the end of um, chapter 30, uh, verse 32. She has her first child. Happy she's got a child. Surely my husband will love me now. That's just so sad. It's really heartbreaking. And then second child, verse 33, because the Lord has heard that I have not loved, he's given me another child. Fourth child, my husband will become attached to me. Then you go to the very end, chapter 30, verse 20. Leah talking again after lots of children. This time my, children, my, my husband will treat me with honor. This whole passage has running through it just the heart that comes from someone who should be loved not being loved. Think of the two sisters. Two sisters at enmity with one another, really disliking one another, vying with one another. Instead of there being sisterly love, there's the very opposite. What a dysfunctional family. What a really dysfunctional family. And all the way through it, this idea of being unloved causing chaos. And that goes right the way through the book of Genesis. We see it in Abraham's life and we see it in Isaac's life where there's favoritism and love should be given and it's not given. And it just causes mayhem. And so you see a family life that is fairly, fairly chaotic. Second thing, why do we still make the same mistakes? This is one of the things which the writer of Genesis continually comes back to. Why, oh why, do we make the same mistakes? And it makes great literature, the fact that the same mistakes are made again. And the writer of Genesis uses it in a literary form because, do you remember Esau and Jacob? You know, and the way that that favoritism had, had destroyed their family. Abraham and Sarah, the way that they had brought a maidservant in He'd taken an additional wife. That destroyed their family. This is three generations of the same family making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And the writer is, is really clever because he puts in a little incident here, which is a horrid incident. But it reminds us of something earlier. And it's um, if you go down to verse 15. Chapter 30, verse 15. When you've got um, Rachel saying to Leah, can you give me some mandrakes? Mandrakes are an aphrodisiac. The, 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 the people in the, the Far East thought that mandrakes would, would help, help you conceive. They would make you fertile. Verse 15. Wasn't enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight and return for your son's mandrakes. 
And then you've got Leah saying, you must sleep with me. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. It's just horrid. Do you remember Esau coming in really, really hungry and saying to Jacob, yeah, I'll give you my birthright for a, pl- for a plate of soup. It's pathetic. It's really pathetic. Something which should be beautiful and really wholesome just cheapened. And this is something that, again, the writer of Genesis continually bringing out, making the same mistakes over and over and over again. There seems to be a cycle. First generation, second generation, third generation. Now, there's a third theme here. It's, sorry, a second theme here. There's the, the, the theme of human frailty, but also look at the role that God plays in this. Now, certainly the women and Jacob talk about what, what they think God thinks. God has given me this. God has given me that. But in fact, God's view in it all is in three tiny little places. Genesis 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. Tiny little part in verse 31. Over to chapter 30, verse 17. Now remember that this, 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 is, the inc- this is the incident with the mandrakes. It's, it's a dreadful incident. Here's a woman who has actually been doing stuff that's really just not on. Same with everyone else. Verse 17, God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a th- fifth son. And then if you go on to verse 22, you've got twice where God has, has listened to Leah. Then God remembered Rachel in verse 22. Now, the part that God has got in this is is tiny if you look at the amount of words that are used. But look at what God does. This is a family in chaos. This is a dysfunctional family that have been given great promises and they don't seem to be able to get anything right. Maybe apart from from Jacob saying, you know, um, it's God's will that you don't have have children. Maybe maybe that was him believing in the promise. I, I, I don't know. But the bottom line, this is a dysfunctional family. And if you're dealing with people that are so dysfunctional, it it must be really frustrating. But there's no sense of God being frustrated here. He listens, he sees what's going on, and he works for their good. He's working his purpose out, and he's working for their good, even though they're in a mess. God is working for their good even though it's a real mess. Now, it'd be very easy to go into the passage here and start building little doctrines in particularly one or two verses. We don't want to do that because that's not helpful. One of the neat things that Christians have always believed is that the Old Testament illustrates the New Testament. And the New Testament is the key to the Old Testament. Okay? Christians have always believed that. When we look at the Old Testament, it illustrates the New Testament. And the New Testament explains, gives meaning to the Old Testament. So where can we look for explanations of what's happening here? Because on the face of it, this is a beautifully written book, this book of Genesis, and we can see a lot of the problems. What, is, what, what more does God tell us? And here I want us to go into the book of, book of Romans. Great book. And we're going to use... We're going to use the New Testament as a way of trying to make a bit more sense, from God's point of view, of this, this story. 
we've got three things. We've got this idea that not being loved causes chaos. Feeling unloved, being unloved, not feeling affirmed causes chaos. The idea that we make the same old mistakes. And then we've got the idea that God is still working his purpose out and he's actually for us, not against us, even though there's bad things going on. Those are the three themes in that chapter in Genesis. Those are three main themes of the book of Romans too. Let's start off Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. Someone has said that um, loneliness and lack of love is probably one of the single most destructive features in the world today. Romans 5, 1 to 8. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Leah's story is the story of many, many people. Being unloved, being cast off, being ignored, bad things follow. People who are, who are hurt tend to hurt people, and it's an endless cycle. Lack of love is a colossal failing of us as human beings. What's the answer? The answer, according to the book of Romans, and the Holy Spirit says quite clearly, God has poured his love into our hearts. Verse 8. Sorry, yeah, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is no need for anyone to believe that they're unloved. No matter what happens round about you, no matter what people say to you, no matter what names you're given, becoming a Christian and being a Christian, God has poured the love that is his into your heart through the Holy Spirit. And even for those of you who are not yet Christians, does that mean God hates you and, and then when you make the decision, he might like you? It's not like that. Very clear here that even if you don't think much of God, he loves you. God loves you and nothing's going to stop that. The need for love that we see so much in that passage in Genesis. The way that that is changed around is in Jesus Christ. Even although many Christians, myself included, don't live like that, it's true. Move on, 
Romans chapter 7. Again, if you've got a Bible, this, it's, it's a lot easier so you can see that it's not just me that's making this stuff up. Making the same old mistakes. It's a theme of Genesis all the way through, the same mistakes over and over again. And I can imagine that if we talk to people here and you wrote things down, it might be a theme in your life as well. Let's see what God, through the Spirit of Jesus, tells us. Romans chapter 7, verses um, 18 and 19, we'll start with. So this is the Apostle Paul who was talking to people about the fact that your life is rubbish. That you, you don't seem to be able to live the life that you want to live. There's a problem. So from verse 18. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Can you see that those two verses, 18 and 19, that's the story of Genesis 29-30. That's the story we've just read. Even though there might be a right thing going on, there seems to be this perpetual problem. I mean, Jacob is married to four women. Two of them are his sort of legitimate wife and two, two are maidservants that they're all sort of swap, swapping, swapping around. This I keep doing. It's a pattern all the time. Go on to verse 22. Yeah, it'd be good to read all of this. We just don't have the time. Verse 22. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Bad news. Again, it's all the stuff that was in Genesis 30. Now, here's the jump, right? Here's the jump. Because... There's a philosopher called Friedrich Nietzsche, quite a depressing man to read. But when, when he looked out at people at like you and I, his judgment was, you are the bungled and the botched. Genesis 30 sort of says that as well. Here's all these people, yeah, they're blessed by God, but they're bungled and botched. And time and time again, if, if you're honest, and you're a bit like me, you feel a bit bungled and botched. But as soon as we go into the New Testament, we cannot stop there. And this is why Frederick Nietzsche, although what he said sounds true, is actually false. Verse 24. What a wretched man am I. Boy, we feel like that. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Down chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is something which you read, but you really have to take to heart. You have to ask the, the Spirit of God to really take and show you. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The same mistakes over and over again. That little voice that says, yeah, you can't, you can't be anywhere close to God. You can't, be, you can't be anywhere near him. Think what you really are. All you have to do is consider the last week or the last month. And the stuff, yeah, you got some stuff that was right. But think of the stuff where you really hurt yourself and other people. The stuff, and that can really munch you up. And the condemnation comes. What a sort of person are you? In Jesus Christ, because of his death on the cross, there is no condemnation. No condemnation. Does that sound like a get-out-of-jail-free card from Monopoly? 
sounds a bit cheap. It cost the life of Jesus Christ. All the wrong things and the punishment and the pain for those wrong things were put on him. He took everything that you and I should have taken, every single thing, all the consequences, everything, and bore it in his own body. That is not a cheap thing. This is not a God who says, yeah, it doesn't matter. Boy, does this matter. The way we live really matters. And the wrong things and the wrong things we are are what meant that Jesus died. This is not a cheap thing. What it also means is that we don't have to keep on making those same mistakes. Jesus, by his death on the cross, has broken that cycle. Are you stuck in a cycle? Making the same mistakes. The good news from Romans, by the Holy Spirit, is it doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't. Even though I'm standing here just now thinking of a couple of things that, that I'm sort of stuck in and thinking, yeah, but be realistic, John. God tells me through his word, and I, I think I believe him. <laughs> I do believe him. It doesn't have to be that way. Even for me. It doesn't have to be that way for you. The cycle can be broken. The need for love, old mistakes, over and over and over again. But this idea that God is for us. Keep on going through Romans. We'll go to Romans chapter 8. Verse, we'll start at verse 28. God is for Leah and Rachel and Jacob and their children. The whole book of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11 is showing how the world got mucked up. And by the time you get to chapter 11, it shows you it's mucked up good and proper. This is deep. This is not just people saying, oh, you shouldn't walk in the grass and then walking in the grass. This is Genesis 1 to 11 shows something that's fundamentally wrong within our beings as individuals and as, as communities. Genesis 1 through 11. When we get to Genesis 12... And the rest of the book of Genesis, we see God making a promise which is going to put it right. All the stuff that's fundamentally wrong, God makes a promise to some nomad called Abram that this is all going to be all right. And Genesis 12, 13, 14, all the way to the end of the book of Genesis, that the writer of that book is certain that no matter what happens, no matter all the, the chaotic things that happen along the way, and boy, they're chaotic, almost like our lives, that God will work his purpose out, but also God is for them. Think about that. Leah, that, that incident with the mandrakes, which I don't really want to sort of dwell on, but here's this woman involved in a, a dreadful bit of stuff. And yet she prays and God hears her. That's so unfair. I mean, she, she should at least, I mean, it's a decent story, she should at least wisened up a bit first and been good before she prayed. And then it's okay for God to hear her, isn't it? It's just so unfair. This is a woman in the midst of a real, real deep problem, and God listens to her. Jesus Christ dying on the cross, taking all the wrong things that you and I have done, the consequences, the source of them. And taking them in his own body. So unfair. He never did anything wrong. He didn't need to do that. He never did anything wrong. So unfair. 
A God who draws alongside Leah and Jacob and Abraham and Isaac. And the whole time, no matter what they're doing, saying, I love you and I'm for you. I love you and I'm for you. The whole time. That's the book of Genesis. And it's, it's in this particular chapter in Cameo. It's a beautiful little picture of a God who, although he seems to be in the background, he is working things out through dreadful circumstances. Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Eight. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, very often when that's read, it's a triumphal. If God is for me, who can be against me? And it is triumphal, but think of the cost. This isn't a willy-nilly God who's just saying, doesn't matter. I'm for you. I'll stand up for you. Do what you want. It doesn't matter. I'll stand up for you. No. This is a God who goes to the cross and tastes hell. Tastes hell. Not just gets a glimpse of it. Tastes hell. Tastes your sin. And is killed by it. And he still comes back. And he says, I did it because I love you. And I still love you. Nothing's going to change that. If God is for us, who can be against us? Leah. Rachel. Jacob. John. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's you and I. This isn't good people. This is you and I. Who will bring a charge against us? Those who are in Christ. It says, it is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ who died? More than that, who was raised to life? is at the right hand of God and is also interceding, praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We could also add in there or family troubles or getting it wrong or mucking up your marriage relationship or any of that stuff that's in Genesis 30. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. Back again to this love of God. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. God is for us. In your crummy, bungled and botched life, where you think that no holy God could come anywhere near you, he is for you. He is totally for you. When you muck up really, really badly and you're sitting there thinking, I couldn't possibly go to a good God if he existed. At that second, knowing what you're like, knowing everything about you, he is for you. The New Testament shows us the old. Romans is the key to what we've read in Genesis 30.
Where does that leave us? God is working his purposes out. Now, at this point, we could do a nice big philosophical discussion about predestination and how he does that and the mechanism behind it and all that sort of thing, which is great. And please feel free to do that. But see, for this present moment, for this present moment, just be thankful that it's true. No one can really work out all the, the mechanisms, how God makes all that stuff in Genesis 30 about the mucked up relationships and the stuff of the mandrakes, how, how he turns that to good. You can, you can sit and you can work it out in your mind, but the bottom line is, he's for us. He is really for us. Nothing's going to change that. And there are people here who don't know God at all, who think that because of their life, he must hate them. He doesn't doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. He does not hate you. He has loved you since the beginning of the world. Even before you existed, he has loved you and will pursue you in love. And I would love to say that when you become a Christian, that truth becomes embedded in your soul. I believe it does, but very often we don't live in the good of it. God is for us. Many of us live Christian lives, although we don't say it out too loud because it would seem unspiritual. We're a bit worried that he's really not for us at all, that he might let us down. God is for us. The whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the New Testament from this passage in Genesis 30, God is for us. God's love is poured into our hearts when we're in Christ. God loved you even when you were far away from him. Are you getting the message here? And this is why Genesis 30 is so important. Because it's a story of bungled and botched, but there's a God there who is working things out, a God who is for the characters, a God who loves the characters. Are you stuck in old cycles? It doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't. And as you get older, you do believe that you really are stuck. You're not. We are not stuck in old cycles of behavior or of thought or of action. Jesus Christ dying on the cross meant that that doesn't have to be the case. Really doesn't have to be the case. And feeling unloved. It's funny, each of the the 12 tribes that we've talked about, each of those 12 names, names given to kids that were based on the circumstances. And you can go through them, read them yourself, those, those 12 children born to those four women. And their names sort of defined them. And a bit later on, Jacob talks about what's going to happen to them, and, and, and you read through the, the Old Testament, and there's a sort of feeling that they're defined by their name. And almost their past haunts them and follows them. Can I tell you something? For a child of God, that's not true. For a child of God, that is not true. Being loved by God changes absolutely everything. Love poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit changes everything. And it doesn't matter what your past is like or the things that have been done in the past or that keep on reoccurring or the family traits that you see coming through or stuff that's happened in your family which is bad which you think will come back and revisit you. It doesn't work that way. God has poured his love into our hearts. He loved us even before we began to love him. He is for you. There is no one left to condemn you once you're in Christ. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Leah, your life is a mess. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Rachel, mess. But there's no condemnation 
for those in Christ Jesus. Jacob, schemer who gets caught out, marrying two women, expressly forbidden a bit later on in the, in the Old Testament. Real schemer. Each time he turns to God, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Take nothing else away. Romans 8. God has poured his love into our hearts. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Who is there to accuse you? No one. It's not such a bad passage after all, is it? Let's pray. Spirit of Jesus, I would pray that through, the, the, through all the different thought processes that are going on as, as, you, as you work in people's hearts and people's minds, that you would allow us, that you would just allow us to see you a little closer, Lord, that, that we could hear, hear your words, to see your face as you tell us there is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus, as you tell us that you are for us and nothing is going to change that. Oh, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts as individuals and as a church that we might know that we are loved and nothing, nothing can change that love. For those of us who have you inside, Holy Spirit, we praise you, Almighty God, for taking lives that are bungled and botched and making them like your son. We thank you and we praise you that you are a God of love a God who doesn't give up, and a God who is always, always for us. Thank you. Amen.